Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today on the podcast, we're talking about the last days before the midterms. Are you are you overwhelmed with all the ads you're getting in the mail, all the TV commercials? You don't know what the hell is going on. Why are we voting on kidney, kidney dialysis? Well, we're going to try and make sense of it for you today. Well, listen, I want you to listen to this conversation we had in the Mission District the other night with about 300 people, and it was moderated by our editor-in-chief, Audrey Cooper. It featured San Francisco columnist Heather Knight. It featured columnist Phil Mateer and myself trying to make sense of all this stuff so we can all be better and smarter voters. Listen to it next on It's All Political. So if any of you have been to any of our events before, come on our newsroom tour, you have probably heard me say this before, but I really believe the Chronicle's role in this community is to spur civil, civic discourse. And we have an election coming up, and whether you're on the right or the left, it can sound like a pretty um, important and crucial election, and it is. And I really think one of the roles of the free press is to explain to you that we have a number of different options of how we move forward as a city, as a state, as a country, and it's up to us to give you information to make the decision about how you want to move forward. And tonight we have a really great panel that's going to be able to help you make sense of these issues before you on the ballot. Before I introduce my colleagues who are back there telling me, Phil Mateer's like, Audrey, don't be boring. So he's yelling at everybody not to be boring. (laughs) Don't get in the weeds. Um, I want to explain just one thing about how the Chronicle Newsroom works on election, um, on, uh, uh, during election time. And one of the things that we do is we have an independent opinion department. And this is an independent editorial board that reports directly to our publisher. They sit in a separate walled-off area, and they have um, endorsements that they make. They make recommendations on what, how they think people should consider their ballot. They do this by interviewing people in editorial meetings, which um, they invite the rest of the newsroom to, and they're always on-the-record discussions. Lots of newspapers do this lots of different ways. Um, but their endorsements are separate from our news coverage. We also have columnists that we pay to have a point of view. We're going to have one tonight, Heather Knight, who does our On San Francisco, Um, and they provide a different type of coverage. So I just think those are important ground rules to get out. We're not going to be talking specifically about our endorsements that the Chronicle's opinion journalists made. You can see all those if you go on to sfchronicle.com and go on to our voter guide. You can see all those endorsements. So without further ado, since I'm sure Phil said that was too much boring weed information, I want to introduce my colleagues. First up is Phil Mateer. He's been a longtime Chronicle columnist, the secret softie of the newsroom. (laughs) 
And next up, you know, editors don't get to make very many decisions about columnists because they usually stick around for a long time. But one of the best decisions I will say I have humbly made is to make Heather Knight our San Francisco columnist. And you know she's not going to be boring because she has her IPA. And last up is Joe Garofoli, our senior political writer. I, he, what, I told him this was a dangerous thing to do. You're sitting over there. You're sitting. One beer already. All right. It's going to be it's not even empty yet. Um, all right, so we decided to start with the sexiest measure on the ballot right now, and that is obviously the gas tax. So, for <laughs> A real statement on today's democracy. <laughs> so we want to show you um, one of the campaign commercials, so let's roll it. More than 1,600 bridges and overpasses in California are structurally deficient and unsafe. But Prop 6 attacks the safety of local roads and bridges. Prop 6 eliminates over $5 billion in existing infrastructure funding, stops repairs to thousands of miles of roads, bridges, overpasses, and freeways. And Prop 6 kills local traffic relief projects already underway. It's why first responders, earthquake experts, and local leaders say no on 6. It's a dangerous road. So, so we show this because I think it's amazing that the proposition is actually killing roads. I mean, it sounds like such an evil, Godzilla-like yes. measure on the ballot. Plus, we have a firefighter to boot. So why Always. do we have firefighters Always. on political campaigns? Firefighters are the most popular people. Both sides want them all the time. Get a firefighter in your ad, and you're golden. That's right. But I want to also point out what you didn't see and didn't hear in that ad. And that was the words, gas tax. You wouldn't even know it's about a gas tax. As a matter of fact, if you look at your ballot, the title and summary, which you're voting on, the words gas and tax do not appear anywhere in this title and summary. That's deliberate. Republicans put this on the ballot in part because they're ticked off about the 12 cents a gallon that everybody's going to be is paying now extra in tax. They don't feel it went to a vote of the people, something Governor Jerry Brown would say, and they wanted to use it as a get out the vote drive in some of those key congressional races that they're trying to keep their hands on. This is all about politics, and we're seeing it all up in this initiative. So, what was the reaction in Sacramento? They wanted the gas tax. Attorney General Xavier Becerra he turned around and he rewrote the language, which is the right of the Attorney General, and took the words gas tax out and instead said it kills the funding, or says it reduces the funding. That is what the proponents, the, the people that want to keep the gas tax, want the debate to be about. The other side is crying unfair. They're trying to say that they want to rewrite it, but it's too late, and that's the format. And that's what we're seeing, and that's how it's playing out. Those are the things that are at play here. All right, so we vote yes, and what happens? We vote yes, and the gas tax is repealed. And the roads die. And the roads die. <laughs> but the interesting thing is that if you ask to repeal the gas tax, polling shows that 50 to 58% of Californians say, yeah, I don't want to pay the gas tax. If you turn around and say, I want to kill the roads, the number drops, and it actually has a chance of staying around. So you make it about killing roads. Audrey, that's absolutely it, with a firefighter. And if they could get a puppy out there in a car, 
they would have done that too over an unsafe bridge. All right, Joe, how is this polling? The polling is 48% now oppose this. So this is, looks like it's going to be going down. So the 40, roads were not yeah, 41% support it. So it's going See, to be that's down. also another confusing thing. If you can make it that a yes vote means no and a no vote means yes, yes. When, you can actually score it. But it could hurt the yes side because people are inclined to vote no. On all propositions, people, the, the, def, the default, what do you say? Well, I don't understand this one. What am I going to do? No. And people, the cynicism, the people in Sacramento know this, and they, these ballot measures are written that way. Not our readers, because they are super You're smart, chronicle readers. You understand this stuff. All right, Heather, explain to us why this has anything to do with Scott Wiener going around in drag. So there is a woman running for Congress in Orange County named uh, Diane Harkey, who had quite a memorable take on this Prop 6. She wants the gas tax repealed, and her quote was, this is just fraud. It's forcing you to take bikes, get on trains, hose off at the depot, and try to get to work. That does not work. That does not work with my hair and heels. I cannot do that, and I will not do that. <laughs> so she's basically saying women can only drive. Um, I mean, to be fair, I rode BART this morning, and I got one of those wind gusts, and I definitely thought it hurt my hair, too. <laughs> so Scott Wiener, who supports the gas tax and is opposed to this measure... Um, decided that he would participate in a hair and heels bike ride over the weekend. <laughs> so you can go online, Google Scott Wiener hair and heels, and you will see a video of him riding along Market Street on a bicycle in a long pink wig and pink high heels to prove that you can ride a bike with long hair and heels. And I saw him this morning, and he had just been to a breakfast, um, and John Cox was speaking, and he disagreed with what he was saying about the gas tax, and he said he wished he still had those pink heels so he could throw one of them at him. I mean, he'd be pretty tall in heels, too. <laughs> but it's easier and more fun for Scott to get in heels and go gliding around in a bicycle than stand around and answer questions like, okay... Was the gas tax necessary given all of the money that we've been paying in transportation and in bonds and in taxes that oftentimes winds up going someplace else where you think you're fixing a road and you get something else? Because that is one of the underlying parts of this debate as well and stuff that we are all going to be weighing. But keep it simple. Keep that firefighter in there. And Wear keep looking for hair. the puppy. <laughs> Puppies and firefighters. All right. Let's move on uh, to prop um, to to the next proposition, and we're going to talk about Prop Ten. We're going to keep it sexy and talk about rent control. <laughs> All right. So, Prop Ten. Um, who wants to explain what Prop Ten is about, Joe? Prop Ten. Don't right, be boring. Uh, yes, we're, we're going to be quick. This is the tough one not to be boring on. Uh, right now, about 15 cities in California have rent control. We're sitting in one right now. Oakland is one. As well, this would allow um, every city in California to enact rent control uh, and, and expand it in any way they see fit. That's so right. Simple. And the idea is that if there's such a demand for housing and uh, people are being forced out of their homes that this is an alternative to it. Well, rent's too damn high. I mean, it's expensive. This One is out of every three Californians spends half their income on rent. I mean, and this is, is sort of a, a reaction to the high cost of housing here. But 
the challenge is uh, to figure out who's telling the truth on this one is that there's not a lot of definitive studies on either side that say, well, if you have rent control, we're, there's not going to be any housing built. Or if there is rent control, it will definitively uh, you know, freeze the price of rents because there's also, it would also limit the supply. So that's the challenge we have in you know, figuring out what would happen if this went into effect. But here, this measure is also an example of legislative failure. Okay? This was put on the ballot by activists who are interested in rent control. Uh, it was funded largely by an AIDS uh, group in Southern California, the same ones that put the pharma legislation on a couple of years ago to try to control drug prices in the state. They did it. Now, when you go out there, you understand that to qualify for the ballot, it takes millions of dollars. You know, it, we have an initiative process. You go out there with a clipboard, you step outside of Safeway or Whole Foods, and somebody's asking you to sign something. They're getting paid for those signatures. They get paid $2, $3 per signature. It can go as high as 5 if the market's real tight and there's a lot of initiatives on. So you qualify it for the ballot, and that's what they did. Then there was a period where the legislature holds hearings and it's to, with the idea of coming up with a compromise, working this out before it goes to the ballot. Nobody would touch this. It was just too divisive. You had the realtors and homeowners associations one side of the room, you had renters on the other, and you had a whole bunch of politicians saying, either way I go, I'm going to piss half this room off. So I'm going to do the great democratic thing and just let it go to the voters who haven't a clue about this. But in the process, we're going to have the real estate interest and the homeowners groups spend $47 million to deliver one message, great idea, bad law, and just drive that home. And what started out with an approval rating of above 50% has dropped even in the Bay Area to virtually nothing oh, by in the urging Bay Area, the no. In the Bay Area, 32% of people support this. And it's, it's not 47. The apartment uh, owners have spent $72 million on this compared, it's three to one difference over the unions and the other folks who are supporting the, the, uh, the pro side on this. And so this one looks like it's gonna go down too. The, so the, the polling the, is gonna go down, which is, it, it, the, as, as Phil said, it's weird because um, it's people like rent control they don't like the way this is being presented. Right, uh, the, the local people who came in said, the local city leaders in San Francisco, they said, we really want to get rid of the current law because it restricts us. So their example that they keep going back to is if um, an older couple has a rent-controlled apartment in San Francisco and one of them dies, the widow or widower can be kicked out of their apartment and rent control cannot be opposed. So one of the things local city leaders are saying that they would do is that they would immediately pass a law so that rent control still applied to this couple, even, you know, even if they're an exception here. But that doesn't really seem to be gaining any traction. Another no. issue that I think is interesting in San Francisco and all over the state is that single-family homes cannot be um, subject to rent control. So families living in San Francisco, there are still a few of us with kids left who live in single-family homes that are rented can have their... Um, their monthly rent go through the roof at a moment's notice, and that's perfectly fine. So I'm surprised that we're not seeing more support for this in San Francisco. So everybody's clear. <laughs> clear as no, mud. It, it, I'm, anxious, I'm anxious to hear what the audience is going to say about this later, because this is, this is what a, a really yeah, interesting I, I, one. I didn't yeah. say earlier, but we are going to save time at the end for questions. Questions are actual questions that start with a who, what, when, where, why, how, and end in a question mark. Um, <laughs> 
But if, if there's anything that you're confused about, please, please let but, us but know. But again, this is so supposedly why we elect officials on the state and local level. They are supposed to be sitting here working through this. Right. They are supposed to craft something. They opted not to do it. They thought it was a lose-lose, not a lose. And it's a lose-lose for us because we wind up at the kitchen table trying to figure out which way does it go. Does it apply to my house, too? If I own a property and I want to retire and rent it, am I going to be subject to rent control? What other controls is going to come through this? There's, so, and by the way, what is it, $72 million now being spent? $72 million, okay. yeah. In a campaign like this, you've spent $72 million. 10% of that goes to the people that actually set this whole thing up. And they're running the campaigns. I mean, you can make, you know, there's millions of dollars to be made in these fights that ultimately we have to decide. Yeah, we're in the wrong business for sure. Um, <laughs> but but I, one of the things about rent control that I find so frustrating is there really seems to be a lack of definitive studies that show long term. I mean, if you're in a rent control department, it's probably good for you, although there are a lot of horror stories of bad landlords who are trying to run people out. Joe, why are there no. Why is this such a com complex and confusing I, that, policy issue? That's the question that I kept, I kept asking both sides of this, on, on this question, and they don't have answers. There, there's the legislative analyst said that it could have, uh, which is the, um, the analyst, uh, basically nonpartisan analyst in Sacramento that, that gives their opinion on bills, and they have some uh, saying that they could depress construction, but it's, that's one person. There's not been longitudinal studies. I don't know why. There's all kinds of anecdotal stories, and we heard, we know them. We know people who've been booted out of uh, uh, rent control apartments and such, but, you know, this is one where we're dying for some definitive information on it. That's what makes democracy fun. It's like being at the crap table. You get to roll the dice and hope to God that there's something in there that's going to work. I want something a little more sure than the crap table when it comes to I'd like to control. give you that, but I, you know, it's, it's funny. I get on, on these measures, I got study A, I got study B. What question did you ask? What question did you ask? How did you frame it? What are you saying? Right. It's, it's back and forth. And the other thing that's scary about these initiatives is that they only tell, sell you the top line. It's always about the top line. And there's pages and pages under it. That you said, oh, I didn't know I voted for that. And so that is why there is a, a, it's easier to get a no vote. It just is, because people say, you know something? Let's give it another shot. Let's try something down the line. Give it another round. What's the rush? And, and our likely next governor, uh, Gavin Newsom. John, is, oh. uh, John, uh, John, with all due respect to John Cox supporters, all three of you in the house tonight. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, he says, you know, he's a no on this. He's a no on this, you know, despite his alleged progressive views. Um, and he said that this is something that he would like to tackle through the legislature. So we'll see if that happens. Good, good luck. They're not, they're not going to touch But us. even rent control and the gas tax is nowhere compared, com even close to the great kidney dialysis debate. <laughs> Heather threatened Phil on yeah. email today and said, if anyone brings up kidney dialysis, Phil has to talk about it. All right, so now let's see Go what ahead, you know about me. kidney you dialysis. You brought it up, Phil. I am spinning. I watch TV. I work in TV. I feel like I am in a dialysis clinic. Every time I turn on the TV, I got Dr. Wang looking at me and talking to me. I got a patient over there that's going to die. I mean, All right, I got people strapped to chairs. You know? It's like, Really? 
Uh, so, and, it, and you want me to decide the fate of this person in that chair? Where's the puppy? <laughs> the puppy well, dies. What if it was a firefighter in the chair? Yeah, can you what get a firefighter in here? And that, it, again, it's a classic role, democracy in action, California style. You know, in 1911, when we passed the initiative idea and said that voters were going to have a say, I don't think we knew it was going to be used like this. This was the dialysis industry. One thing you're going to know is that it's the most expensive thing in the history of American politics on a ballot. $111 million has been spent Wait, so which far. prop is this? This is prop 10. Uh, eight, uh, eight, 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 eight. Eight. 10's rent control. After you get your rent control, you go to dialysis. <laughs> but, or if you don't get your rent control, you go to dialysis. Or you don't go to, no, then you go to someplace else. But, so, so the, the dialysis industry, it's private. It's making a boatload of cash. Boatload. They have to if they're spending this much money to roll something back. So the healthcare workers union said, you're spending a lot of money. Why don't you spend some of it our way and hire more people, reduce hours, do a better job of staffing? We want to unionize. There we go. Okay. There we go. But so they said, we're going to collect these signatures. We've got a couple of million dollars. We'll go out and we'll collect these signatures and we will put this a measure on the ballot that will cap your profits and your spending margins. Okay. We will do that. And uh, unless you come to the table and agree on the union. Well, the dialysis people said, we'll roll the dice. We'll go to take it to the ballot. And the, there was, there was a, a brief time when they thought they might work out a compromise. Never happened. So now you and I are having to decide something we don't even know anything about uh, and being inundated with these ads that are breaking it's, records. It's the ultimate punt. Uh, by the legislature uh, to do this. They tried. I think Adam Gray went out with the head of the, to the, uh, one of the companies is based in Colorado and he came out and they brought the union out there and they thought they're going to try and work something out, but they didn't. But it's, it's weak. And so now, because the, the kidney companies or the dials companies uh, are, are And the kidney they, foundation. And they, <laughs> fifth, they, because their profits will be capped at 15%, they're willing to spend $111 million to, and, and, and more. It could go up to $150 million to, to uh, not lose this. All right, so that brings us to the Senate race. <laughs> okay. In, 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 the, in the weird segue. So um, there's a Senate race. Uh, we have Diane Very Feinstein. lifelike depictions of <laughs> Diane Feinstein and Kevin DeLeon. I mean, these, these are pretty good. There, there are some other these, ones. Yeah, that... compare, wait till you see the John Cox and Newsom ones. <laughs> Yeah, well, all right, let's just, <laughs> Diane Feinstein against Kevin DeLeon. What is this race really about? Let's start with age. <laughs> age, ambition. Whether you're a moderate liberal or a progressive liberal. How much you, appro how much you and how loudly you oppose Donald Trump. And possibly for Kevin, a, a way to sort of transition into running for mayor of Los Angeles. Yeah, that's, that's his next that's step. that's his goal? I think that's his new goal. He took a, he took a look at the polls. He's thought that Dianne Feinstein uh, was too old, that she wasn't going to make it, and that he could be the new blood of the Democratic Party. Unfortunately, she owns the blood bank. <laughs> very good. Wow. Non-dialysis blood very bank. Very nice. Uh, but you, you, he couldn't say, Diane, you're too old. He said, it's time for a new generation of leaders. And for a while there, Di was looking a little tottering coming in out of those hearings. 
uh, but then the Kavanaugh hearing happened. It's cost her her one-time Republican support, but I think it's re-energized her with the Democratic Party. But even before then, she is a California institution lover or dislover or hater or whatever. She has a long history of delivering across the state. And that is something that it's tough to throw rocks at. Well, yeah, I mean, it cost her some, I mean, Republicans thought she handled this badly. So did the Kavanaugh hearings, so did Democrats. But really is a Central Valley Democrat or Republican who cares about water, who she's been really good about uh, on their issues, are they going to vote for Kevin DeLeon? He's, he's actually yeah. winning among Republicans in the polls uh, because they don't know who the hell Kevin DeLeon is. Uh, <laughs> they, uh, they, <laughs> he's the leader of the sanctuary movement in California and they're voting for him. It's, it's like because they're voting against Diane. If they knew 10% of his platform, their heads would explode. Uh, so, uh, his, but his name is not Diane Feinstein. That's it. And so, but uh, and the the sad part about this is, if if for your three John Cox fans in the room, Republicans, um, he he is uh, upwards of 40% of the Republicans aren't going to vote in this race. They're going to be like, I'm going to leave this blank. And this is why the Republicans and and some Democrats hate the top two system, where no matter who the top two vote-getters are in the primary, whether the Republicans and Democrats, Democrats and Republican, go on to the general election, um, Republicans really hate it because oftentimes it's two Democrats. Is this race really only about personality and, and how far to the left you are? Or are there, are there really policy differences that people here might want to vote on? Yes. The, the one major policy difference they have is over health care. Uh, De Leon is a supporter of single-payer Medicare for all. Feinstein says you should be, on, be able to get on Medicare when you're uh, 55, and then she'll you know, figure out how to get the universal coverage after that. She is, moves, as she does with many things, very methodically, uh, and she's not going to jump out on, on, the, on a progressive uh, move like that. Although she has, in this race, she has moved uh, left on a couple other things, like suddenly she was against the death penalty. And she said, oh, yeah, it's, I've been against that for years. Well, she didn't tell anybody. Uh, uh, and then, she, then all of a sudden she's for loosening up of marijuana laws. Well, really? You didn't say that two years ago when it was on the ballot. Um, so she's, uh, she's moved. De Leon has, uh, one, one goal he has achieved is he's moved Feinstein to the left on a few things. The one I thing I appreciate about Kim DeLone when he came in for the editorial board meeting, though, is his avid support of the Giants. Like, I just, I thought he was playing to the home what? crowd a little bit. Yeah, there, there was a lot of that. Anyway, of the Giants? Of the Giants, the San Francisco oh, no. Giants. He's a, he's Come on. A big, he's a big pander I'm just trying that. to give now people something to vote on. Sorry, he's no. very pro-Giants. No. I don't know Diane Feinstein's Giants. Oh, no, Diane's Giants. No, she's Giants. Diane's yeah. Giants. She I actually figured. goes to games. Oh, I was just going to say that I was um, interested to see the other day that she said in an interview that she supports Proposition C, which is the uh, measure to double the amount of money we spend on homeless services in San Francisco, and she said she would vote for any measure that would back homelessness in her own city. So that was another issue where I felt like she had perhaps moved us slightly to the left. How's it polling? How are they polling? Uh, Feinstein's uh, way ahead in this. Um, she is at uh, 43.27. But uh, like I said, De Leon... There are other polls that show it closer. 28 to 14 there, among There's other tracking polls that show it closer, including among Democrats. But well, yeah. I think that she, she wins it. And then the She'll question becomes, easily. does she actually serve six years? Yeah. 
And, which, and what do you think? No, I don't think she served six years. Uh, Wait, but I, you're she, asking us to play God there. I'm not know? playing God. I just think that's. You just look at the odds. She had what the chances are. But I also think it's that Phil Matieri is God. I'm not God. He is. I'm the other guy. Uh, but it's <laughs> Gavin's going to be. It probably be elected governor. So he would have the say. She wanted to make sure that who who was going to be having the say. And if we all know Diane, she'll want to say in whoever's oh, going to replace God, yes, her, no. and she'll have that with Diane. And I think that you're, you're, you're already hearing that talk going around in Sacramento. Right. And here a couple of names that are being tossed out. Uh, uh, Feinstein really likes Adam Schiff, everyone's favorite uh, cable news. Uh, this is a Schiff crowd. All right. Uh, Alex Padilla, our Secretary of State. Any Padilla heads in here? Ooh, that's, that's not good. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, I mean, how many people would know Alex Padilla if he well, walked into a room, though? I mean, he, his yeah. profile is not huge. But one of the things this race did was it helped the Democrats out. The Democratic Nationals basically sent a message to California, don't mess with Diane. And the, and the reason was tactical. I mean, when you're in the Senate, it's a vote. There's, fit, there's 100 of you. Each state gets two. You wear your jerseys, it's blue or red, and you vote. Rhode Island has two, California has two, Montana has two. The difference is, to run a statewide race in California, it costs 20 to $25 million. To run a competitive race in Montana, it's about five. Still five one vote. Five dollars or five million? Five million. Still one vote. It's still a vote. So the Democrats were saying, look, we want to put our money into those states to pick up votes. So leave California alone so we don't have to spend there. And let's take the money we were going to spend, spend in California in a competitive race and put it into the Montanas, the Wyomings, or the Arizonas where we might have a shot. But the state party didn't seem to get that memo because they were messing with Diane. Exactly. Well, that's because in a state where you are the majority and you're going to guarantee to be winning, you don't have to pay attention to anybody else. You, you have the luxury of doing whatever you want, and that is going further to the left. That, that was a, a liberal wing of the, of the Democratic Party, which gave her, which gave, um, De Leon was endorsed by the California Democratic Party. And it was sort of the, uh, um, the liberal part of it. He, he captured that. And because those are the folks who are the party generally skews much more to the left than the general. Well, no, the, the activists skewed to the left in the Democratic Party, but she won every county. She won every county. In the she primary. Won, she won every district, uh, in, uh, Senate district, including De Leon's. Right. So that was when the people spoke. It was that. All right. So let's move on to the governor's race. And um, we have two campaign ads that we want to play for you. And we want to start with um, one of the two John Cox videos we could find. Life, honestly, it's a struggle. Traffic and roads, a mess. Rents going up. Friends and family moving out of state. Millions of Californians live near or below the poverty line. Politicians like Gavin Newsom talk about change, but they've done nothing. Sky-high gas and food prices, homelessness. Gavin Newsom, it happened on your watch. So yeah, it is time for a change. Time for someone new. I like how she says... I like how it's just someone new. She never even says the words John Cox. Yes. Uh, that is, that's the, the that um, ad captures the, the best part about John Cox's campaign, the worst part. 
The best part is that's a decent message. You know, here's all the things that are screwed up about the state. This guy has been in office for going on 20, 25, 30 years. It's on him. He's part of the political establishment, as Cox says. What are you going to do? Why should we keep doing the same thing? But the worst part of it is, is like, so what, what's this other guy going to do? He's got no answers. And that's his, his campaign. Right. He's, but, he's like, I'm not Gavin. Right. If you threw, threw in health care on that, that could have been a Bernie Sanders ad. <laughs> Poverty, right. homelessness, rising rents, being forced out. It's an income inequity ad. And it's calling out the establishment for not dealing with it. And it's, it's true. I mean, it can't be, it, uh, it, it's a true statement. Now, Gavin's going to go try to go around it because he knows that in the eight years, and I'll ask you this, have any of you heard Jerry Brown as governor utter the word homelessness? No. Because he was taught, and a, a, a congressman who will remain name, nameless, who talked to Jerry about that, said, you know, Jerry, you know, in the eight years you've been in there, I've never heard you once say the words homelessness. And he goes, yeah, you're right. Because if you say the word you own it. And Jerry was not going to own homelessness. He'll take climate change. He'd even take the high-speed rail. But he wasn't going to take homelessness. And the state has not done much or anything about it. And it is a problem that has spread up and down this coast like you haven't seen. Do you think San Francisco's something? Get in the inland. Get down to San Diego. Get down to Los Angeles. It's, it's even worse there. It's all over the state. They haven't done anything about it, and Gavin, and he's calling Gavin out on it. The thing is, it's the Republican calling him out on it, so it comes across completely different. If that was a progressive, Gavin could be in trouble, right? Right, and that's why in the primary that uh, Gavin tried to take out Antonio Villaraigosa, because that would have been a much more competitive race. Villaraigosa was talking about the two Californias, and... Um, it was a much more, uh, should we say, valid spokesman for that than John Cox, who's a guy who parachuted into California uh, 10 years ago, less than that, and has no base in the state. I mean, people don't know him. He's largely self-funded his campaign. He, like you said, he has the good core message, but he has no other ideas. He has no constituency. And he's, since he's self-funding, he has no other uh, uh, funding source, and he's in serious trouble. And it was interesting to see John Cox complain about not getting enough media attention and that we were biased towards Gavin Newsom. And then when they did have a debate at KQED the other day, he literally ran away from reporters who tried to ask him questions afterward. And there's a funny video that shows him just like waiting for the elevator while everybody's trying to ask him questions and he wouldn't answer them. So he can't have it both ways. Has he been able to articulate any coherent policy differences of things that he would actually do if elected governor? His one thing he says that he would do, um, it, which is not a, a particularly new thing, is he to, to create more housing, uh, which he wants to do, is to reform the CEQA laws, the CEQA laws, the environmental laws that, that uh, govern all kinds of building and, and, um, and development in the state. Now, that's kind of a Republican boilerplate talking point. And Jerry Brown tried to do a little bit of that, but not really. Um, and so that, but that's all he really has articulated. He said he'd also give, I think, some, uh, tax, some increased tax credits for, uh, for building affordable housing. He has a history as a, um, he runs a lot of rental properties in the Midwest, and he said he would be able, you know, he, he get the, uh, something he can build in nine, for $90,000 in Indiana uh, costs $600,000 in California. But again, there's no plan other than, quote, I will bring people together, even with differing views than I have, to do this. But 
there's not a lot of policy, there's not a lot of meat in the bones there. Well, if you're looking for meat on the bone, I mean, you might, I wouldn't even look at this race. Because we're going to watch Gavin's ad in a minute, and you yeah, can figure all right, that let's, one out. Let's watch uh, Newsom's ad. To renew the California dream, we need to renew our promise to our children. A promise that says every single baby will have quality prenatal care. Every toddler can attend preschool, every student has access to high-quality after-school programs, and every graduate has meaningful job training and work opportunities. The future is not just in front of us, it's inside us. Gavin Newsom for governor. Courage for a change. It's such now, a confusing tagline because it's like, courage for a change? Courage for a change. It's like, like what are you saying, Gavin? It's like, you're, you have the courage for a change? Or courage, it's about time we had courage. Are you saying Jerry didn't have courage? Yeah, I mean, if I were Jerry Brown, I'd be pissed. <laughs> Like, what, I don't have courage? What, I, what have you been doing the last eight years as lieutenant governor? You're just waiting for me to die, basically. <laughs> you know, it's like... Or go out of town. Or go out of town. <laughs> and the other one I like is the change. It's not just ahead of us. It's inside us. <laughs> what did I eat today? <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, I just... Where's the puppy, Gavin? <laughs> Heather, Heather, you said... Do you all remember Jack Handy on SNL? Do it. So Saturday Night Live fans will remember Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy. And the future is inside of us reminded me of the quote, if God dwells inside us like some people say, I sure hope he likes enchiladas because that's what he's getting. <laughs> this became known as the enchilada ad to us after Heather made that point. But, you know, he, he hits with, we, you know, reinvent the California dream. There's no mention of poverty. He goes instead with income equity, which he's trying to say every child will be in preschool, everybody will have job training, everybody will feel good. Uh, no mention of high-speed rail or any of those issues because that's not what he's selling. The, the first thing he's going to do when he gets in office, uh, if, if he gets in office, um, is going to be focusing on a zero to three uh, to, to do, to do uh, impre improve uh, uh, education for kids zero to three. Preschool. Preschool kids, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> maybe, maybe I need a little help. Human um, beings age yes, zero to yes. three years old. They're children, Oh, They're children. You know, maybe I can get into one of those classes. Uh, so anyways, he, uh, and that's, but there's not going to be a lot of funding put towards it. It's sort of going to be an uh, educational campaign. It's not like even, it's sort of a feel-good thing. Well, Gavin's great at feel-good. I mean, Schultz. when he was mayor here, he had initiatives all the time, and then it was like, you know, six months later, what happened to that initiative? Well, I have three more. Yeah. And the other thing I like about the ad, is, I thought was great, is John Cox. You didn't see him. Gavin, he's in every frame. I mean, that's Gavin, baby, with the open collar. Did you see that station, statue, by the way, down at City Hall? Yeah. No tie, open collar. He looks like Errol Flynn. Errol Flynn. <laughs> oh, baby. One more button. We're going to be Fabio. <laughs> He's driving around the state in a big blue bus. It was parked in front of City Hall today, which I thought was funny because obviously he's getting the San Francisco vote. But um, it just says Gavin on huge letters and then tiny letters for governor. And nowhere Democrat. No. No, no, Gavin. it's Gavin. It's, it's Gavin. You know, Dietrich, Madonna, Bowie, <laughs> Gavin, Brando. <laughs> so, and he's going to be, on, he's, going to, he's going to face a legislature that is overwhelmingly Democratic and liberal that has been chomping at the bit under 
Jerry Brown, who keeps saying no, 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 who set himself up as the anti-legislature, I'm going to be the adult in the room, we're not going to spend money, and these people are going to want it, and Gavin's going to be uh, really torn about what to do because... Well, you see, it'll be torn about what to do because, let's see, the, the teachers gave him a million bucks, the SEIU gave him uh, 5.2 million, the nurses gave him a million bucks. Who's he going to say no to? You know, who, that's going to be one of his big challengers. And Jerry, you know, was good at saying no sometimes. You know, we, we, we covered Gavin for a very long time, so I, I feel like we have really seen him... Uh, I mean, grow up sounds... Um, like rude, but 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 I but Heather, you remember his seven-hour state of the city speech? I mean, seven hours. I cannot tell you. There were days when um, I would see on my calendar, like editorial board Gavin Newsom, and I'd be like, Oh no! Like he would come very... into the Chronicle with his accountability matrix, which was this thick, and he'd want to go through every page, every statistic, and we had to cut him off at the end after like. Two hours. I mean, it was like going to a statistics class to talk to him. He's a very, he's a very unique politician in that way. And, and I think now people assume he's going to be this crazy San Francisco liberal. But one thing that I was reminded of when he came in for this interview was he was really, he kind of played a Jerry-esque role oh. with the Board of Supervisors oh. here. Oh, well, you want to talk about role-playing? I don't know. <laughs> Gavin. I think Joe's seen it. I've seen it. Gavin Newsom is the ultimate chameleon. I mean, he's amazing. Uh, I'll, give you, I'll, I'll give it to you. You ask Gavin, if a Republican asks Gavin a question, the Republican gets a Republican answer. First thing Gavin does is repeat the question back in a way and relates it to his own empathy, like I was a small businessman, I was this, I was that, and then he goes and answers a question however he wants. During the course of answering questions, I've seen Gavin actually assume the mannerisms and speech habits of John F. Kennedy, another time, Bill Clinton, he'll go in and start right like this, everything about it, and in the last couple of years, he's actually assumed a semi-Barack Obama. He is a master at he's that. A, he's a little twangy right now. Uh, y'all, uh, how y'all doing? And I was like, y'all, you're from, you're from Marin. <laughs> but if I'm from South Marin, South, man. South Marin. <laughs> but okay. yeah, he's assumed sort of this valley persona, you yeah, know? I don't know, I don't know what, what persona it is now, but yeah. It's a, he yeah, was but, playing Wilco in the ad. I'll give him but, that. But the, the Gavin... The Gavin Newsom that I saw in the last year is a lot. It seemed a lot different than Gavin Newsom of eight years ago. It is. Yes. No. He. I, I agree with you, Audrey. He has grown up, and and let's remember, he was a guy in his early thirties when he was mayor here, and he has just turned fifty-one. He has grown up. He has four kids now. Uh, a uh, a marriage, stable marriage, as far as we know. I meant that. I did not mean that. Gavin's turning point was when he was mayor of San Francisco, for all his ups and downs, he really thought, I mean, he was the ticket. And he remember he was going to run for governor. He ran, started to run for governor until his uncle Jerry said, no, I'm running for governor. <laughs> and Gavin said, no, I'm the young, the new, the new blood. And Jerry said, I'm the old blood, and I own the blood bank. <laughs> and, and Gavin, if you recall, got his ass handed to him. He didn't even make the ballot. Yeah. He, it just cratered. He found out all his tech talk and everything, and his seven-hour answers went nowhere. 
and he wound up eating crow and having to run for lieutenant governor, a job he said. He told us he would never run for lieutenant right. governor. And he, so he had to just completely eat it. And since then, he's rebuilt. And that was like the changing time because that's when he realized he could lose it all. He was one step away from losing it all and he had to regroup. And he's used the lieutenant governors uh, as a platform. And he, but he doubly got lucky with the election of Donald Trump, yes. who is the force hovering above the screen of all these elections is Trump and that effect. I think that Newsom really relishes the idea of being um, the head of the state that is most obviously the core of the resistance against Donald Trump. When I interviewed him a few months ago and said, you know, you became mayor and you immediately started marrying gay and lesbian couples at City Hall, what's the out of the box Seemingly audacious. Audacious. He says audacious like in every sentence. All the time. (laughs) What is the thing that you're going to do as governor immediately, you know, out of the gate that will surprise all of us? And he said he couldn't say, but he knew what it was, and it will be related to immigration, and it will be very anti-Trump. So I think he's going to be um, just the anti-Trump governor, and I think he's really looking forward to that. You don't think he's going to be like the anti-Trump presidential contender in waiting? You don't no. think any of this is like no, calculated I, towards that? No, no, not, not 2020. Not, not, 2020. No, not 2020, 2024. 20. Oh, well, yes, yeah, so that's definitely on the table. Absolutely, absolutely that's on the table because then he'll, he'll have one term. He has to accomplish something. He has to, he has to achieve one of his audacious goals. He has to show that he's done something. Um, and then, oh, well, that's definitely on 2024 if, if, you know, President Kamala Harris isn't elected. <laughs> <laughs> and you know that just like sticks in his craw. Too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's move on to local measures. Let's go on to Prop C. Um, something that um, Gavin, incidentally, has not officially come out one way or another, although he's being quoted by both sides. So, Prop C would tax. Oh, Heather, why don't you explain? What does Prop C do? So it would raise the gross receipts tax on any company in San Francisco that brings in 50 million or more per year. The tax would just be on the money over 50 million. So your first 50 million is free. Um, it, there's tw- tw- it's very complicated how the tax is structured, but basically retail like Safeway would pay less and financial services companies would pay the most and there's a whole range in between. But the average would be 0.5%. Um, and it got so, into a big Twitter fight yeah, between it, Mark it, it Benioff. brought into the Twitter fight. So uh, my theory is on the day after Election Day, these tweets were going to think, uh, I think we're going to see that these were the most impactful things. Because Mark Benioff, who is a longtime philanthropist, specifically about homeless families, he's given a lot of money to homeless families, to uh, Hamilton Family Services. He came out in support of Prop C and said, this is together all of our San Francisco's problems. And then his buddy, Jack Dorsey, the CEO of um, Twitter, came out and, and pointed out that even the mayor of San Francisco, London Breed, is not in favor of Prop C, and he wants to support the mayor which I think was just a political gift. I think Benioff thinks this, this tweet was a political gift, too, because then he retweeted. Let's pull up Benioff's next tweet. Hi, Jack. Thanks for the feedback, which is like, that's never going to start well. Yeah. 
You know what the subtext is there. Which homeless programs in our city are you supporting? And he's basically pointing out that the um, that the the tech titans that run these multi-billion dollar corporations that are literally on mid-market, which is in many ways ground zero for our homeless programs or problems, are doing very little to to help the problem, and yet they are spending millions of dollars to try to fight Prop C to to keep off this homeless tax. And uh, we were just at a luncheon with like. 2,000 city leaders today at Moscone Center for Spurs annual luncheon. And uh, Mark Benioff had Salesforce sponsor this event, which probably cost, I'm guessing, around $15,000. But it gave him a platform to, for 40 minutes, basically scold and yell at all of the people in the room <laughs> that were not supporting Prop C, and this was a really business-friendly crowd. It, I, I walked back to work laughing because it was such... I, I mean, Heather, tell me if I'm wrong. It was an explosive speech that he gave. Yeah, so I saw the schedule of how the luncheon speeches were supposed to go, and London Breed was first, and she stuck to time four or five minutes. She's against Prop C, saying we don't need to double the amount of money we spend on homeless services, that we need to do more, but this isn't the right mechanism. It's very straightforward, not very exciting. Then Mark Benioff gets up. He was given the exact same number of minutes as she was and probably went over by half an hour at least. And he... (laughs) He was just ripping all of the business people who are sitting there listening to this speech about how they're not doing enough. He recalled um, the wealthy people who have supported San Francisco philanthropy-wise in the past, like Warren Hellman, Levi Strauss, Don Fisher, this, the, um, who founded Gap. So many people have donated millions and millions to the city in the past, and he says, where has that spirit gone? We've let our city fall apart. It's embarrassing to walk on Market Street. He said people used to talk about Ghirardelli Square, Lombard Street, all of these famous places, the cable cars, and now when you hear about San Francisco around the world, it's the Needles, the homeless tent encampments. And he was just going off for on and on. And um, eventually the MC kind of had to get up and sort of... <laughs> but she, he finally got off the stage and she said, you didn't know you guys were coming to church, did you? <laughs> he really sounded like a preacher. But, but he has a problem because even though he is the city's largest employer and has $100 billion in market cap... He's having a really hard time. The business community is against him. And the mayor is saying, like, I don't even believe in this. So a mayor who is elected promising to deal with homelessness is saying, I don't want your $300 billion. Why? Right. But in the interest of, like, this is key, is that the other side is raising questions saying, okay, I'm glad, Mark Benioff, that you're putting... $8 $8 million of your money and Salesforce money into trying to, into convincing the voters of San Francisco to vote for this. You're spending so much money that you're even putting billboards up in Oakland because <laughs> they have so much money to burn, they don't know what to do with it. So that's good, but what does, does the measure, is it going to deliver? Is it going to deliver? Is it, we're, we're a city of great <coughs> intentions, but what's the delivery? Is it going to actually make a difference? We're already spending $385 million or 380 or whatever you want to call it, or 50 for housing or this or that. Is it going to make a difference? And that's one of the things that's interesting about politics is that it involves people, and people with big bucks get involved. It's like, like, like horse racing or something like oaring in a thoroughbred. I, I, I appreciate it. Mark Benioff does this. What was it? Michael Bloomberg put $17 million into the soda tax here in, 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 in the Bay Area? I mean... 
these philanthropists, and Ron Conway gets in, or oh, Ron Conway's dark money, Benioff's good money, I'm always trying to keep a track on that. Well, I, I, we, were talking about, I, we were talking about this earlier, and I'm curious, and you guys are closer to this, to this beat than I am, is why the mayor's against this. Um, I, you know, the, the rap on her when she got elected was that she was backed by too many of the, the tech interests and stuff. As Starting out of the gate, this could have been a good mic drop for her to just say, hey, you know, I'm going to go against the people who funded me and, and support this. Um, uh, so I, I, don't, I don't understand why she, where she's at on this. And so I don't know. You guys, I would like to hear your takes on this because, I, like I said, you, you guys cover the mayor and I don't. Well, the reason she's given publicly is because she doesn't, she's not fully confident that the money we spend now is delivering. She wants an audit, but um, we've done many audits on this issue. So it's not like she couldn't have asked for this in her time as supervisor. Um, why is it only a problem now? She backed a sales tax measure as well as a commercial rent tax measure, both of which failed that would have given more money to this problem. So why suddenly when she's mayor and it's the big businesses rather than regular people who would have to pay up if she opposed? So it's a really tricky political state she's put herself in and this, it's this, kind of confusing. Yeah, but at this moment, she is <clears throat> still a new mayor for the most part. And um, she still has sort of the honeymoon glow about her. And this is a city where the unemployment rate is, what, 2% or something? And Joe, why not now? Because why, why not tax the because biggest, if you listen to the, her, the, the biggest uh, if you pockets listen to the her, deepest pockets in the city? This, because, if you're going to do it, do it now. Joe, stop being boring. So, <laughs> no, I'm not. First of all, too much in the weeds. So. If you're going to make a big hit, if you're going to do a hit like that, and you're going to do it, and you're going to do $300 million, you might want to know where it's going. You might want to, might, okay. So this is going to lock the city into $685 million a year on homelessness, okay? That's not money that's going to be going to the schools or anyplace else. You've made the hit. You've made the commitment, and it goes on for long ever. So there is a question there about, is it the right one? And there would be questions about whether it's the right one, but if you have Benioff putting $8 million into it, all of a sudden that changes the question, right? But here is the sneaky little thing that's lying underneath it all. Is it, to qualify this measure, they went and got signatures because there is a court decision pending that says if you, under the old rules, if, you, if the Board of Supervisors had put this on the ballot, it would have taken a two-thirds majority for it to win. Under this new rule that's being tested, it only takes 50 plus one. So it's put on by voters, not And it's put on by voters. Now, there was a measure that was passed by, in this manner, and it's being tested in the courts. And so the city attorney has said, and San Francisco quickly went and mirrored this with school tax and with a, transport, a child care tax as well. But the city attorney has said, I'm gonna t we're going on hold on this until we're on firm legal ground. So even if this wins, if it doesn't get two-thirds, they're going to start collecting the money, but we're not going to spend it. Which is really going to piss people off. It's going to, you're going to say, I pass, it, we're going to collect the money, and we may or may not spend it. And if we lose the court fight, or if the court rules one way, you don't get it. It goes back. If it goes the other way, you're okay. But it's going to be pending. And that's one of the reasons they're trying to, to sell this so hard, is they, they're hoping to get to the two-thirds margin, but that's very, very difficult. Yeah, yesterday, Mark Benioff told us that if this goes to court, he will personally fund the defense of it to keep it to 
So, I I mean, he's he's definitely putting his money where his mouth is. Incidentally, Gavin Newsom said to the Chamber Chamber of Commerce audience, San Francisco needs to stop spending money on this or it will just continue to be a magnet. And I think that's really, to me, that's what the heart of the disagreement about this is. I mean, we have the argument of people fundamentally not thinking that we're spending the money effectively, but I think a lot of people also believe that San Francisco is a magnet, and in, you know, depending on whose numbers you believe, somewhere around, you know, even if you believe the homeless coalition's numbers, they'll say something around three-fourths of the homeless population is native-born or were here before they came, became homeless, which is like how long before. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of fine print there. But that still is ignoring the fact that 25% of maybe 10,000 people is still 2,500 people who came here from elsewhere. And so, you know, I think Mark Benioff would say, I know he would say, the city of St. Francis, it does not matter if you were homeless somewhere else and come here, we still have a responsibility to care for you. And I think that's a really hard thing for some city residents who see the crisis on our streets and, and care about the people who are you know, shooting up and, and having to defecate on the streets and living on the streets and certainly the homeless families. It's still a really hard thing to say, but should we tax our businesses this much if we're just going to get more people coming here and have to be the care center for all of California. And that's what you get to decide. Yeah. And I think that also that, that heart question, you know, the city of St. Francis question goes up against the head question that people have about sort of the, gro- the deep cynicism that government can actually figure out what to do with the $300 million. It's, it's the same thing that goes to the gas tax. Why the, the gas tax, yes, is a get out the vote, but at, at, at the heart of that is a cynicism that Caltrans isn't doing its job about how, spending that money right. So it's, uh, that kind of thread comes through all of these issues, or many of them. But I think um, one question you have to ask is, what's the alternative? The Chamber of Commerce is leading the fight against Prop C, and when you ask them, they say the c- programs we have now are failed. They're not working. This $300 million that we already spend is a waste. But then you say, so we just get rid of it? Then imagine what our streets look like. And then you say, well, what is the alternative? And they don't have any idea. They just flat out say, I don't know. So... Which brings us to something that we voters are always faced with, and it's a paradox. Because one side would say, so your answer is to keep spending more money, dig a deeper hole? Uh, It really worked with the schools. I mean, we passed every school tax and bond initiative there is. The Bay Area does that, and people are real happy with the public schools. They're real happy with the roads. We passed more and more on that. I mean, one of these questions that's floating out there, and I think you're, you're tapping on it, is the question of like, well, is there an answer? What is the answer? Is it even something we, we, the government or anybody can do? It's, it's scary. And if you think it's scary here, like I said, go over to Oakland. I mean, you want to see some homeless encampments that will scare you to death, go to Oakland. Yeah. Go to Berkeley, go to Emeryville, and go into the, in, in, into the, in towards the inland. Because San Francisco's, as Mark Benioff said earlier, is the Four Seasons compared to those other cities. Because well, they are real 
you know, we, we have some we have some um, advantages in San Francisco in that we are a city and the county. Oakland is just a city. They have to deal with Alameda County to try to get some of those things in there. So if you think it's, you know, difficult to get things done in San Francisco, all of the other counties who are dealing with localized problems, it's a lot more difficult. Right. And, and, and Alameda County is very bifurcated. There's some very wealthier parts of Alameda County and, and Oakland is not as uh, Where well you and Phil live? I'm sorry? The rich parts where you and Phil live. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, um, any last thoughts on Prop C? No, it's just very difficult because I was uh, with Jennifer Friedenbach, uh, the Coalition of the Homeless, the other day on Turk Street, and we're out in Turk Street talking, and the guy's sitting right next to me on the corner, you know, slamming the needle into his, uh, his leg, just, just openly shooting up whatever it was in there. I hope it wasn't fentanyl because that's the latest thing, and I hope he doesn't die and all that, but... That, if that, it, it, is, it is impossible for us as a society to accept that as the new reality. But, this is the scariest thing to me, is there is a generation that has grown up, that is the reality. To us, it's abhorrent. To us, it's a descent into the third world. For your children or your grandchildren, that is the world. They will grow up with people begging outside of grocery stores, they are growing up with people shooting up drugs on the corners. They are growing up with tents on the sidewalks. That is their perception from the time they are small up. That's what we're leaving them with. And, and just to bring it back to the new mayor for a second, I think if she doesn't come up with an actual plan, with an actual vision, I'm su frankly surprised she hasn't been able to really clearly articulate it. They've made hints at it, uh, some more mental health beds here, some conservativeship here, but without an articulated vision, which I, I have to believe is coming, I don't think she's going to last long in this job. Isn't that one of the, the challenges with the homeless issue is that we're still kind of in the experimental stage as to what works? We know some things that work a continuum of care and such, but we, there still is not a consensus of opinion about what actually works, you know, here, and it might be different that works in Oakland, you know, they're trying the, the, the small houses and all the other stuff, but we just don't know. Right. Well, and some we things know that we know work include if somebody who's been addicted to drugs like the man you saw on Turk Street finally says, I'm ready for help. Currently, he doesn't have anywhere to go in San Francisco. The drug treatment programs have waiting lists. Um, so certain things that we do know work are just not being offered even in this wealthy liberal city. All right, so let's move on to the other people who are going to have to own this, and that's uh, the supervis supervisors. We have four districts up, the even districts. Um, Heather, can you go really quickly, what are these, what are these races really about? Okay, District 2 is the Pacific Heights and the Marina. Catherine Stephanie is the incumbent, although she hasn't been in long. She took over for Mark Farrell, who briefly became our mayor and appointed her to replace him. Her main challenger is Nick Josefowitz, who's on the BART board. He is throwing a ton of money at his own campaign. He has spent hundreds of thousands, I think it might be 800000 now, um, to try to get this seat that pays $115,000 a year. <laughs> kind of strange. Um, so what is, that, what is that race really about between um, Stephanie and Josephowitz? Who wins? Well, yeah, thanks. I mean, no, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, some of these races... I mean, do they have I'm, any I'm, policy I'm, I'm, No, they, they, they're not that much different. They're very similar. No. I moderated a debate between those four people a couple of weeks ago, and they all said the same thing to every single question. <laughs> so, so we're talking about I, I, personality. I've moderated those debates, and you really wish they had like a ditto card. Ditto, <laughs> ditto, same thing. 
<laughs> All right, so there's no difference. We don't care who you pick. Um, pick your personality. <laughs> yeah. So District 4, we're in the uh, outside lands. Yes, th there are some differences here. Gordon Marr is the brother of Eric Marr, who you might, might ring a bell for you. He was a supervisor. Or maybe not. Sorry? Or, or maybe, maybe not. not remember. He, he was, was most very famous quiet. for banning toys and Happy Meals. Um, so his brother is the progressive candidate. Jessica Ho has been endorsed by Katie Tang, who was expected to run again but decided not to, and through her backing behind her legislative aide, Jessica Ho. The biggest knock on her is that she's only lived in San Francisco for a few months. Um, <laughs> she was in Los Angeles until, I think, March. But she's the more moderate candidate. She's gotten, I believe, over $600,000 spent on an from IEs, um, those are the independent expenditure campaigns. Um, so wealthy people, including Ron Conway, are throwing hundreds of thousands of dollars behind her. And then the candidate, um, readers of my column know that I'm a fan of public school teachers, and Trevor McNeil is one. He um, teaches public school, and I think it's very cool that he is supporting a family of five on a public school teacher's salary. They all live together in a one-bedroom apartment in the sunset. But, but before everybody thinks that you should just therefore vote for him if you're in District 4, I, you know, this, this district to me, what, this ed board was the most horrifying because this district is so conservative. If you ask them, do you believe there should be homeless shelters in your district to a person, every single one of them said no. You're talking about the candidates? Yeah. Absolutely. It the, is a very conservative district. And Gordon... Marr, who was, was, last time I saw him, he was down at the Occupy camp. He's a very progressive guy. Uh, I called him up and was talking to him about uh, marijuana. Should we have marijuana clubs out there? Nope. Should we have homeless shelters? Nope. And this is the progressive. New housing? And I nope. said, so, what's up, Eric? What's up, Gordon? <laughs> he said, you know, Phil, I spent the first couple of months going around and listening to my constituents. And I heard him. And I go, that's politics, right? We'll just park the progressive over here because the district wants that, and that's where we're going to go. Well, I mean, it really goes to show, I think, that the, the differences that we remember from eight years ago of progressive and moderate, when we had Chris Daly on one side and Gavin Newsom on the other, and those, those um, I mean, it was good copy, but it was maybe not the most productive politics. Those differences just aren't in the city in the same way anymore. Yeah, everybody thought the new supervisor from District 8, um, which is the Castro, Rafael Mandelman, would be a real firebrand progressive. And he's really, um, you know, looking at each issue back and forth. He's not going to be boxed in on anything. And I think that's really the trend that we're starting to see, that it doesn't matter so much if you're the progressive or the moderate. You're going to look at each issue as it comes up. The yeah, because if you want to stay in the game long, and they all do, you're sitting there going, who's winning the next step up? And it's not State Senator Jane Kim, and it's not State Assemblyman David Campos, and it's not Mark Leno in the mayor's office. So you're looking at that, they're, they're starting to look at that going, maybe, you know, the progressives always put up the challenge and put up the good fight, but they never seem to put it over the goalposts, so these people are re in politics, I'm reevaluating, or I'm, I'm evolving. evolving. <laughs> That's it. Evolving. 
So if I was, I was horrified by the District 4 debate um, because it was, it was really a lot of like, we don't want to propose anything and we don't want to change anything. District 6, I thought was a really fascinating, there are three really interesting candidates. They have really distinct differences and very distinct personalities. Uh, yeah, I moderated a debate for that one too and they actually had different answers from each other. Um, so. Christine Johnson and Sonia Trous are teaming up on the ranked choice voting strategy, which means that they're officially vote for either of us. That's fine. Just don't vote for Matt Haney. Um, Matt Haney's definitely the progressive in the race. And um, Sonia Trous is most well known for starting the Yimby group here in San Francisco. She's all about build, build, build. In the debate, she said that she, it just was sort of a random answer, she wanted to build an eight-story parking garage in the Mission because she thought if or sorry, the Richmond, because if the Richmond would accept an eight-story parking garage, they would accept eight-story housing, too. So um, I don't think she's going to get very far on that. <laughs> Probably not. And Christine Johnson, she's a planning commissioner. All right, so District 6. Uh, it, also an interesting district, this is Jane Kim's district, which she didn't even carry in the mayoral election, and now there's a real chance that it could swing further to the more centrist part of the liberal wing of San Francisco. Yeah, the makeup of District 6 is changing a lot because so many condos are being sold in the South of Market and Mission Bay, so those are more moderate voters who are sick of needles and um, just filth on their sidewalks and want somebody to do something about it. Okay, and last we have District 10. This is out in the Bayview. There's a lot of interesting things happening. Uh, today we had another story about the shipyard and the radioactivity there. We're going to publish a story, another level of our, another version of our ongoing investigation on Sunday into what we found at the shipyard. There are a lot of interesting things happening and not happening in the Bayview. Right, so um, Tony Kelly, if you live in District 10, you've seen him on the ballot before. I believe this is his third shot at the Board of Supervisors. He's the progressive who lives in Potrero Hill. And then Theo Ellington is, lives, he bought um, a home on the shipyard, which he's now suing over because um, it's been found to be radioactive and the cleanup was not well done. And then Shimon Walton is a member of the school board. Shimon and Theo are pretty similar, as far as I know, in their um, policy issues, and they've both been endorsed by Mayor London Breed. Yeah, why is she endorsing so many people in each race? She's doing two in like every district because I think she wants to cover her bases. Yeah, and with ranked choice voting, you get many picks. So make friends. I'll endorse you and you. It's interesting to note, I don't know if I have another could address. What we're talking about here is four districts in San Francisco. It's a cross-section. And if you look at District 4 and District 6 and District 10, and we're just talking about this shift from progressive to moderate, those are also areas that have undergone a very big demographic change in recent years. The Mission District is now home to all those high-rises south of Market, and people have been moving in and getting engaged. That's changed the electorate, right? Yeah, people who are buying $1.5 million condos south of Market just don't think that they, they should be forced to be clearing other people's feces from I don't think a, a lot of homeowners feel like that, you know, or that they should be fined if they can't get the graffiti off their garage door fast enough. I hear so many times from residents of District 6 that they email their supervisor or the mayor and they get no response over and over. I try to respond to readers and so many people say, whoa, you actually wrote back. Right. And then in District 10 and District 
four, District Four is very strongly Asian now, and more conservative. Very strong demographic out there. And District 10 is undergoing a demographic change as well. It used to be the heavily African-American district. Now it's becoming increasingly Asian and gentrified. Right, it's one of the few places that homes are semi-affordable in San Francisco. It actually, it has the highest ratio of home ownership in it, that district. Most people don't realize, it's all single-family homes out there. And that's, that's where homeowners, people that want four walls of their own, that's gonna be the next place they're going. Well, and we have Pack Heights, which might elect Nick Josephowitz, who's a progressive. I mean, that's totally different than what, well, or he claims he's progressive. He, he made know. a face at me. You don't think he is. But he, he's, he's running as a progressive. The progressives think I'd he's like a progressive. I'd like to know what a progressive is. Okay, well. well, he's against Prop C. They all were in the debate. So that tells you something. Yeah. All right. So speaking of progressives, let's go on to um, our local congresswoman. She she's running like everybody else, but not really in San Francisco. She is the Uber candidate. Can we run our, our ad for that? Votes against the farm bill, but supports sanctuary cities. Higher taxes, more spending, gun control, and a money wasting bullet train. Allows San Francisco environmentalists to deny us our water. Nancy Pelosi. Yep. But also, surprisingly, Jim Costa. After a lifetime in politics, Jim's no longer one of us. Costa's walking in Nancy Pelosi's shoes. Costa La Vista, baby! I'm Elizabeth Hang, and I approve this message. I think that actor looks like John Cox. That was so weird. Well, he can't, he can, at least our state senator, Scott Wiener, can walk better in heels than that guy. Yeah, I'd say. But like the, the, the San Francisco point. pride right there. <laughs> we have guys who know how to walk in heels. Um, but really what this is about is Nancy Pelosi, the Republicans are using her nationwide, not just in California, as a lightning rod. Why Nancy Pelosi? She's the boogeyman who represents San Francisco values. That's right. And she's a highly identifiable person. And uh, it made for a hell of a funny ad. Yeah, I mean, you're going to give it, you, you'd give that the Emmy of the, of the ads we had. Short of the puppy, but really good on the heels. And it was done by a female candidate. Which is weird. Like, no, found... she has the license to do that, right? To, you can't, you're going to say that Heather's being sexist? I mean, th this thought goes we into saw, that. We both thought, that's so sexist. Exactly. <laughs> but if a guy had done that ad, it would be screaming. I, I'm sorry, that is, I know these consultants, that's what they think. Am I right, Joe? Oh, absolutely. And the, the thing is, is the Pelosi is being used, as, as Audrey said, all over the country. The, the strange thing is, if you look at her uh, approval rating nationally, you know, it's around 29%. The approval rating for Paul Ryan is around 30%. So uh, they, and Paul, you never see Paul Ryan in an ad. Um, so th because you he's You never not, see Paul Ryan at all. You never see, <laughs> certainly not standing up to the president. Um, the, um, but it's like, uh, it's, but, but it, they continue to work because it's shorthand. It's shorthand for this person is super liberal, they're a socialist, they're way out of bounds. And in, and in districts like this Central Valley district of Jim Costa, I was just out in uh, San Joaquin Valley where uh, Jeff Denham is running a race. He's the incumbent uh, Republican against the guy Josh Harder. He just calls him Bay Area Harder because the guy lived there in San Francisco for six months. He's a venture capitalist, so he's Bay Area Harder. And there's a lot of Bay Area people going down there to uh, work on the race. I'm sure some of you here have done that. 
And uh, so, but it is, it's shorthand, it's shorthand. So the last time we saw Nancy Pelosi was like maybe three weeks ago. She came in and she was uh, the happiest I had ever Absolutely. seen in her. Years, years. Is she still happy? Let's talk Tuesday night. <laughs> no, There's she's, she's still happy. The, 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 the latest is that the, the latest you know, stats say the Democrats have an 82% chance of winning back the House. If, if, we trust, if we trust polls. <laughs> no, even Pelosi says the poll, it, it's going to be very, very close. She said in the top 60 races or so, collectively, 25,000 votes could decide. So we may not know even Tuesday night whether the House is going to be held by the Republicans or Democrats. It could be days, weeks in some cases, before some of these votes are counted. But we were talking about this blue wave. There was a blue yeah. wave. What happened to the blue wave, Phil? Well, it, uh, the thing called the beach. You know, and sometimes a big wave crashes and then it just goes right back out. Politics are, is about, in the media, is about waves crashing on the beach. What gets your attention? Is it the Kavanaugh hearing? Is it the people coming up from the Central America? The wave just keeps pounding it, pounding away. And we look at, wow, look at the spray. Look at this. That's it. Elections aren't won on waves. Elections are won on tides. The tide's either in for you or it's not. And the waves crash, but the big question is, is where's the tide mark? And like it or not, there's a guy going around middle America who's pulling 20 to 25,000 people into arenas. Okay? There is no politician in modern times who's done that, who's been able to do that. Say what you will about America, say what you think about it, but nobody has been able to do that. Phil and I were talking about this the other day. The president has done a remarkable job as a campaigner. You know, his, we'll talk about his means the way he did it in a second, but uh, he has saved the Republicans from a, a huge blue wave by, by appealing to the, the basis instincts. And he's very upfront about it. It's this election's about Kavanaugh and the caravan. And that's how he has turned out the vote. Now he's, you know, talking about revoking birthright citizenship. He is appealing to... Pretending you know, that transgender people don't exist. Absolutely. He, and that appeals to evangelicals. He is a one-man get-out-the-vote machine. Right. And he's been effective at it. He's very effective at it. And one of his... The things that I don't... The Democrats continue... Lord love him. He pulls him into little bighorn. He throws it out, and they go, and he says, okay, where are you on borders? Where are you on... on should people be allowed to fly in the United States and have a baby and be an American citizen? Yes or no? Do you want ICE or not? Do you want this? Do you not want it? Everybody says it's so divisive. That's his point. And he does something else. He makes it a joke, which is really something new that we've never seen. He makes it a joke. And when people, some people laugh, and those people, that other people find it incredibly offensive, and he doesn't care. He's the Lenny Bruce of politics. And he, but he brings you, as Phil said, and Little Bighorn, so all of a sudden, you're playing on his turf. You're not talking about health care, which, uh, which a majority of people are most concerned about. You're talking about you know, transgender issues, or you're talking about you know, the caravan or whatever. And it's, 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 it's 
It's brilliant politics well, in, a, in a sick way. It's also black and white. And I think the Democrats have a really hard time because they want to talk about the nuance. Mm -hmm. You know, like everything's like levels of, well, let me explain it to you. And like the levels of it, you can't explain it in a, an arena. Yeah. Doesn't get people excited in the same way. It's black and white. It's easy to understand. You can say it in a commercial. You can say it on the stump. You can say it anywhere. Mobs, in a tweet, not jobs. In a tweet. Democrats are for mobs. Republicans are for jobs. Keep it simple. That's, that's what he's doing, and, and he has no problem doing it. And for someone who's always claiming that we're about fake news, he can put something that's blatantly not true into a tweet and get millions of people to believe it, like that there are ISIS terrorists coming up from Honduras in this caravan. Everybody knows that that's not but true. But if the Democrats stick to, their, to their, their game plan, which was Nancy Pelosi told them, don't make it about Trump. You can't win that one. Make it about health care. Make it about jobs. Yeah, but even Nancy Pelosi had a hard time doing that when she was talking to us. I mean, it's hard not to talk about the elephant in the room. I got it. But sometimes, you know, you, you, you don't win by playing the elephant's game. Ask the guy that follows the elephant around with the shovel. This is not, you, this guy, you can't win with that. Sometimes you just got to say, that's in the room, but that's not what this is about. We'll see what happens. It's, it's going to be a very interesting one. I will tell you also that the Democrats are a little up down in the dumps because in the past when the midterms it's been a big surge i mean traditionally you the, the party the, the house changes hands it did it under clinton it does it under bush it's that's a time when it happens naturally the tide goes out right about now they're sitting there going why isn't the tide going out even more why is it even close and it's going to be a mixed tide to mix our metaphors um it's because the senate there's an 86 percent chance that republicans will hold the senate so we're uh, the forecast is for two more years of serious gridlock. Yeah. All right, so we're going to open it up for questions pretty soon, and we have a microphone that's going to be somewhere. Um, again, I will remind everybody that I am the mean editor, and I will cut you off if it's not an actual question. So please don't make me be mean, because I hate doing that. Last thoughts about the election. Anything you want, Phil? Yeah, vote. More than once if you can. <laughs> <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> Bad advice, Heather, not bad advice, go. I think in San Francisco we're so, um, we just assume everybody's gonna vote against Donald Trump and everything will be blue and I think that Tuesday might be somewhat disappointing. And if you care, uh, don't moan to your friends about it. Go out and do something about it. Call, go to a swing district, make calls. Uh, whatever side of the aisle you're on, uh, write cards, do something, but don't just sit there and, and bitch on Facebook. That's, that's weak. Thank you. I, thank I, you. I, thank you. Thank you. Hashtag is not voting. Yes. <laughs> All right. So we have a, is, is this our, is this hot mic? Yep. Yes. All right. So feel free to come up and uh, ask your question. Uh, before, while people are walking up, we did get a reader email earlier. The question was, which of the candidates are actually going to tackle pension reform? Um, Joe, you know, don't laugh. It's a well, good because, question. No, no, pension is, reform is, is a major I, and, problem. And the, only because of the, our previous comments. The one candidate who has really talked about reforming the, the what the state's $1 trillion pension uh, deficit is John Cox. Um, and that's serious. I mean, he, Newsom is like, oh, yeah, we got to do something about that. But realistically, given his support from unions, he's, there's going to be a, a lot, to be a lot of pressure from you for him to do anything about it. All right. So we have a question over here. Yes, you have a question. 
What do you think the role of the media is in not drawing the line between the tax cuts that occur in Washington that destroy housing programs and the fact that we've got people on the street and making it so that people know that this happens and as a consequence, this happens? Because sometimes we can't kind of draw the lines, but that's what we've got, we hope you will do. Well, the tax cuts aren't only affecting homeless or the housing policies. That is a fundamental belief of the administration that it doesn't want to put any more yes. money into housing. We write it. We hope you read it. But there's a lot of people out there that are tuned into their stations, their newspapers, and that's the only thing they want to see or hear. And so it's tough. Sometimes you feel like you're getting out there. Yes. Uh, two questions. I watched the uh, Christine Blasey Ford and, and Brett Kavanaugh hearings from the beginning to the end, and I don't know about you guys, but whenever I was on an interview, an interview if I asked the interviewer, if I answered the, the question with an, um, that I was uncomfortable with by throwing it back to the interviewer, I wouldn't have gotten the job. And, and how Republicans feel like they can use this is, is something that that's confuses me. But anyway, I think Christine Blasey Ford certainly got the short end of it, and, and I don't know how the Republicans can use that as a, as a wedge. Um, that's number one. And number two is with, well, I think two-thirds of the state houses controlling uh, in the country being controlled by Republicans. I'm worried about voter suppression and voter repression, not just in North Dakota and, and Florida and Georgia, but all these places where the secretary, in some instances where the secretary of state is also running for governor. And is that going to, what is your opinion so, on how that so affects So I would the, say on the first issue, polls show that Republican women, 53% of them believe that women routinely make up claims of sexual assault falsely. So if you, if you 53% of Republican women believe other women fabricate claims of sexual assault. So you just have to understand, if you're coming from that point of view, they don't, they don't see it like that. They really think that he was unfairly targeted, and it's getting out the vote in some of those counties. And, and so voter suppression? No, I was, I was going to say on the, uh, um, why the people care about Kavanaugh, if you ask Republicans across the board, other than tax cuts, what they like most is they want conservative justices, not only at the Supreme Court, but at all levels. So to get that guy through, that was a big win for Trump. All right, go ahead. I'm most concerned about voting on the dialysis measure because I don't go through dialysis and it seems like something that should be figured out somewhere else. But since I do have to vote, are there any unintended consequences that we should look for, like dialysis costs go through the roof because there's not as much profit to be made, so the supply goes down? That's just something I've been battling with, and I don't know how to deal with it. That's and one of the concerns, and that you don't know. That's, that is the, the role yeah. of the dice. What the, now, I'm going to tell you that in politics, the best thing, the, 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 first thing that, the first thing they do is smile. The second thing they do is scare the hell out of you. You know, if you don't buy the smile, then the dog dies. The sky falls, the dialysis moves out, and there's, the bridge falls on you. So yes, I don't have an answer for that. I have, I have a sneaking feeling that if they're making this kind of money right now, they'll keep making it. Okay. All right. Daylight savings time. You didn't weigh in on that at all. I, uh, I can tell you that as a mother of a six-year-old, I hate changing my clock. Um, your question. So there's been a number of people in the Bay Area supporting Andrew Jantz against Devin Nunez, and I'm wondering how you would handicap that race in the Central Valley. Uh, Nunez is going to likely win. He's been up in the polls by uh, upwards of six points the last I, set. I saw um, 53, yeah, Nunez is 53. 
Um, so that's going to be a tough one. That's always was going to be a tough one. Jans was, uh, there was a ton of national money pouring in a, for, or pouring in against Nunes just because of the, his profile and because a lot of progressives, a lot of Democrats think he's nuts. Um, so, but that's not going to be enough. Jans wasn't known there, um, you know, as in, in, in widespread enough, and he's running against the, a long-term incumbent. Very tough. Next question. Um, yes, I'm a past president of the League of Women Voters and currently chair of San Franciscans for Sunshine. So I was pleased when the Chronicle came out against Prop B, but I find it's hard to explain that measure to people and also to explain why you should vote against it. So I'd like for you to help me out here. Thank you. Heather, Prop B. All eyes look at Heather. <laughs> um, well, this was put on by Supervisor Aaron Peskin, who's concerned about um, privacy issues and tech companies taking our data, but the unintended consequences are that it would make it harder to get open government um, responses, I believe, sunshine issue requests. Um, so there's unintended consequences that he says wouldn't happen, but that people like you think would. So that's it in a nutshell. All right, well, thank you all. I just wanna say, first of all, thank you for being engaged voters, but election time, it's easy to be engaged. It's harder to be engaged after November 7th. Please continue to consume media and be informed about your community. Come to our next Chronicle Chats event, and if you want to see our voter guide, including our editorial board's endorsements of all of these measures and more, you can go to sfchronicle.com. Thank you all, thank you all. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to all that. I hope it made some issues a little more clear for you. I'd like to thank... Uh, Fernando Diaz, our Chronicles Managing Editor for Digital, for producing this. I'd like to thank my colleagues Audrey Cooper and Heather Knight and Phil Matier for the lively conversation and, and all the uh, folks in the room there as well. 